0: Thank you. I actually, on my paper here, started a list of the people that I would like to thank, but once it took up half the page, I realized that that wasn't going to work. I have the privilege of serving with some incredible men on the Elder Board, and they have entrusted me with the opportunity to stand and to open the Word of God. Shane and, and Chad, as well, have done a fantastic job of being faithful men of God, faithful. Preachers to open the word and we are blessed because of it. This process of us standing in the pulpit now for the last four months or so um, has been an an interesting one and a crazy journey along the way Um, to look out and to see so many people eager to be part of ministry, eager to be part of Sylvania Church, eager to say, I will stand, I will serve is an incredible blessing. The men that we met with this past week, our new group of deacons. What a fantastic group. And uh, we are so blessed. God has been so merciful and so kind to us. And uh, we don't deserve his blessing. We don't deserve his blessing. Thank you to all of you who have undertaken the responsibility to be active participants and members of Sylvania Church. Thank you to those of you who Donate your time. Invest your time is the better word. You invest your time in the well-being of this church and this body. Um, It is is an eternal investment. And uh, we get to see the beauty of the payoff little bit by little bit, week by week, as God does incredible things among us. So the last time you had to listen to me, we uh, were working through a four-part series in the Psalms. We are today going to begin a new series, and by way of basic introduction, I want to remind you, well, not remind you, but I want to say a couple of things about my listening experience, because most of the time I am like you, and I get to take in teaching. For a large number of uh, months, that teaching has been, in the Sunday school hour, focused on the book of Matthew. So we're looking at narrative And for the portion of Shane's teaching on Sunday morning, that has included acts. And so we were looking at narrative. And I find myself, when we are working our way through narrative passages of Scripture, to ponder the people in the stories. You know, I know that that's not necessarily exactly the most spiritual perspective, but I ponder the people. I consider the people who are part of the stories. When Jesus spoke to this person, When Jesus did this miracle, when this happened, what did these people think? How were their lives changed? When they walked away from that moment, what happened to them? And we obviously don't have the full history of everybody who ever interacted with Jesus or the disciples. And in some ways, that's good because it would be distracting. We have all that we need for life and godliness. But in other ways, boy, I sure would like to know. Now, the cool part is that for some of those folks, we can get a glimpse into some of what God did to them and in them and through them. And Peter is one of those people. Peter is the guy, let's be honest, if you read narrative portions of Scripture, you ponder him a lot. Okay. Peter ends up sticking his foot in his mouth and whatever idiom you want to use about the guy who's doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, saying the wrong thing. But you know what? Jesus loves him dearly. Jesus holds him close. Jesus brings him into experiences that not all of the disciples are brought into. Jesus speaks very tenderly and directly to Peter. And I believe it has a significant impact on him. And so as moving into this next chapter of teaching, this next um, section of preaching, um, I decided let's take a look at the book of 1 Peter, Peter's larger letter, and let's take a look at how the interaction with Christ, the stories from the narrative where we see Peter being spoken to, being a part of what happens. how might that affect the way that he approaches communicating with the church? And so that's kind of the platform from which we will move forward in our study of first peter starting this morning if you would please stand with me i know you just did this to honor the reading of god's word as we look at the first 12 chapters of the letter of first peter peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thank you, Lord, for your living and life-giving word. May we be changed by it today. Amen. There are more than a couple of letters included in Christian scripture. And at the beginning of each of these letters... <clears throat> we typically come across three things that are valuable and important in order to understand the message. That is, number one, the author. Number two, the audience. And number three, the initial greeting that will set the tone for the letter itself. Now, in this circumstance, the author is Peter. He clearly identifies himself. He identifies himself as an apostle Of Jesus Christ, which, in fact, we know from the narrative portion of scripture, he is that there are some that would like to argue whether Peter is, in fact, the author. That is an unnecessary amount of argument and will be moved past quickly this morning. Peter is our author, our audience. There is a multifaceted description that Peter gives to the audience of his letter. Now, in this multifaceted description, he is going to use a lot of Hebrew imagery. Now, what that does not mean, as some might suspect, is that the intended audience is Jewish only. All right? Stop for a moment and consider Peter's perspective. Who is he? He is a Jewish man. He is not a complicated man. He is relatively a simple man. He is a worker, a man who works with his hands. He is a fisherman. He's probably in pretty darn good shape based on the work that had to be done back then completely by hand. What do we know about Peter? We know that he has an understanding of what we would consider to be the Old Testament, that which is the Jewish history. And we know that he is going to come face to face with one who his brother identifies as the Messiah. And what's interesting is, while first hearing that from his brother, One day, Jesus will ask them, who do you say that I am? And the one who speaks up to affirm that he is, in fact, Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, is Peter, who has come to become convinced of the truth of what his brother first uttered when he first met Christ. So this audience, using Hebrew imagery and description in Peter's identification, begins like this. His audience is, number one, elect exiles. We're familiar with the word elect. It has the concept of being chosen by God. Exiles is the idea of sojourners. You are currently residing in a place where you do not live long term. This place is not your home. And so the audience that is receiving this message would be considered people who are displaced from their home and elect If you put those concepts together and look at it beyond just the physical description, which carries into account the Old Testament time period where the people of Israel were literally removed from the land by enemy empires and taken away from the chosen, the promised land that God had given to them. If you move beyond the physical and you look at the spiritual, what does it mean to be elect? Well, it means to be chosen by God to be part of what is truly his people, his covenant people. And what does it mean to be a sojourner? Well, for those who are spiritually his elect, the true Israel, what really is our home? Really and truly, what is our home? Our home is not of this world. And so every step that we take, every breath that we breathe, everywhere we walk, every place that we lay our head, the reality is that we are, in fact, Chosen sojourners, this is not our home. We await that which is not this. They're not just elect exiles. They are elect exiles of the dispersion. Again, the imagery began when the Jews were forced off of the land. But there is, in fact, a greater sense of dispersion going on in, for the people of God, the big picture people of God here in its application to true Israel, a persecution has arisen. It is not easy to name the name of Christ and to escape that which would want to walk in opposition to Christ. Persecution has driven the people of God away from where their original base was in Jerusalem. And to these people, who have moved away and have scattered maybe because of persecution, maybe to go and reside in a place temporarily that is not ultimately their home. Paul says, I am writing to you. He describes where they are physically located at the moment, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you were to look at a map, these are all cities and regions of what we know as modern day Turkey and the exact listing gives them what we would consider to be a cyclical pattern. This is indicating that the letter that Paul's writing here is intended to be read and passed on from one congregation of believers to another, from one congregation of elect exiles to another. He says that they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Now we've heard and used that word comes out in scripture i believe seven times in the new testament it's an interesting word that i never picked up on the specific detail until i was preparing for this the word that means foreknowledge you're smart enough here to know to knowledge beforehand to know beforehand but the word specifically in greek that's used for knowledge here is not the word that means to know something like you know a fact It's the word for knowledge that means to know by on the basis of relationship. So functionally, the beauty of what this word is communicating to us is that by the foreknowledge of God, the fact that God had relationship with us, he knew us in the context of relationship beforehand. There's beauty to that, great beauty to that. And it's that context, foreknowledge, knowledge of relationship beforehand that has caused these elect exiles to be in a position where they are in to receive the word that is being sent. Additionally, he says, in the sanctification of the spirit. This is the idea of receiving purification by the Holy Spirit. This is pushing us towards the concept of holiness, and this is going to be a major theme that we pick up next week, the concept of holiness. But for now, Paul is Peter. Sorry, that's going to happen. Peter is introducing his audience. He's naming them by name and description. And part of what he is saying is that you have been purified by the spirit and moved towards caused to walk in holiness. Finally, is the idea of obedience. This is the concept of Submission. And sprinkling, this is the concept of purification, and it captures some of the actual practice at the altar from the Old Testament, the sprinkling of blood for purification from sin. So these, his audience, can be summarized as chosen sojourners who are known beforehand by relationship with God, who have received purification by the Holy Spirit And are called to submit themselves to Christ and walk in the picture of priesthood. It is true that there is a time and place to Peter's writing, and that time and place was a long time ago. But there is a reality that in the application of who his audience is, that stretches and connects with us today. So when Paul says you and we, we are correct to identify ourselves as chosen sojourners known beforehand by relationship with God, receiving purification by the spirit in submission and obedience to Christ for the purpose of walking in holiness. This includes us as well. So we would do right to listen. Paul's greeting then is very Paul. Peter's greeting then is very simple. Grace. Grace. And peace, he says to them. Now, this is going to be interesting. It's purposeful, but it's also ironic because what we're going to come face to face with over the course of this study is that these people are in a situation where they are experiencing difficulty, testing, trial, persecution. And so when Peter says to them, grace and peace. I am sending to you, communicating to you the blessing of God's favor Which, let's face it, when we're suffering and there's difficulty, it does not feel like God's favor. But that does not change the reality. Grace, God's favor, but also peace. This is the idea of rest and wholeness. In the midst of suffering and persecution and trial, Peter says to them, may you be blessed with God's favor, which you are. And may you find in the midst of that peace and wholeness that's deep, that's loaded. To this group of people, then. Peter starts by reminding them of what it is that they have received from God. From verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The nice thing about Peter's writing is that it is very straightforward. What you see is what you get. And so we can dive right in without having to do any kind of additional word study and parsing of what this truly actually means in the Greek. Let's look at the progression of what he reminds them of. Number one, he reminds them that the mercy of God is the starting point. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. The mercy of God is the starting point. It is his decision, God, the father. To bring life from death. And that decision is rooted in his compassion. Number two in the progression. The resurrection of Jesus Christ secures life with confident expectation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So the progression of his teaching point is that the mercy of God is the starting point. It is God's decision in his compassion to give life, to bring forth life from death. And secondly, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that secures that life with confident expectation. When we use the word hope, we often mean it in the sense that I have no idea if this will happen. This is what I truly want to happen. And so at the end of the day, I say that I hope that it happens. That is not in any way, shape or form what it means when we read here that we have been born again into a living hope. Hope, as it is explained in Scripture, is not a wanting. It is a confident expectation of what is sure. I'll say it again. It is a confident expectation of what is sure. So being born again into a living hope means that we are born again into a confident expectation of the sureness of God's compassion to bring forth life from death and to make the resurrection of Christ that which secures life for his people. This means that for the elect sojourners who are receiving God's mercy, death has been replaced by life and uncertainty, chaos, anxiety. Those things that define death have been replaced with an expectation of certainty. And that is Christ is alive. We have life in him. He is our inheritance. What is him and what is his will one day be ours. Now, when it comes to this confidence of what is sure, this idea of hope, the writer of Hebrews has this to say. Faith is the assurance of what is expected and the conviction of what is seen. There is an inextricable link between hope and faith. In fact, Paul reminds us that these three remain faith, hope, and love. And he goes on to say that love is the greatest of them. And that is in a different discussion altogether. And we will hit the concept of love here this morning, but hope and faith are linked. Hope is that which we have confident expectation of faith takes that confident expectation and preserves it, makes it ours, ministers it to us specifically and directly. Peter agrees with this. And this begins for us. What is this morning? A three-part teaching about faith from this passage. Sorry, it was all introduction up till now. A three-part teaching of faith from this passage. Three lessons about faith. Lesson number one, faith acts as a guardian from verse five. Well, you have to back up because it's one long, beautiful sentence, starting in verse three, all the way through verse nine. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Lesson number one, faith acts as a guardian. Here is the concept. Faith acts as, as the Greek word renders it, a sentinel, that which hems us in. The elect sojourners who have received God's mercy are sentineled and hemmed in by faith. Now, the details are that this faith is not in our own power. The faith is not in our own doing. We do not conjure the faith. We do not preserve the faith. We do not keep the faith at its power. That happens, it says specifically, by God's power. And secondly, there's a purpose to it. Faith doesn't exist for my own edification. Faith exists so that when a salvation comes, the salvation that we await, the revelation, the full partitioning and participation in the inheritance of Christ. When this revelation comes and is revealed, faith will be confirmed. Faith will be fully realized. The imagery of this idea of sentinel that hems us in was captured by David and recorded in Psalm 139. David writes, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely, O Lord. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. In this passage, David lays out the fact that God himself acts as guardian and he does the job of hemming us in, hemming in his people. Peter, in fulfillment of this passage, sheds light on the fact that God accomplishes this guarding by imbuing us with supernatural confidence in Christ. This faith linked to this hope and that he, in fact, is the source of our life. And he sustains that through this faith. David was not wrong to say that God is my guardian. But Peter opens the window to be able to see the truth of how God acts as guardian. I have placed this gift of faith in you. I am the power source of this gift of faith. And this is what guards you. We are protected by this reality. I am alive in Christ, He is my full inheritance. And all that he is and all that he has will one day be mine as well. Now, Peter says that this reality causes us to rejoice. That phrase is going to be repeated in this section. And literally, it means to jump for joy. That's how demonstratively expressive this concept of rejoicing is. And it is appropriate this is an appropriate response to learning that God, in fact, is the power source of our faith, which acts as our guardian and hems us in. But the problem is that there's also bad news coming. And that is lesson number two. Trials and difficulty are ahead. Lesson number one was faith acts as a guardian, as seen in verse five. Lesson number two. Faith is meant to be tested, according to verse seven. In this, you rejoice, Peter says in verse six, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith is meant to be tested. The concept here is that faith is shown to be genuine when it is refined by testing. And the details are interesting. Peter says, testing by trials of various kinds. What that means is that as we look at our life, And we see difficulty, pain, frustration. There is no one single way in which to say, well, when this happens, when it happens like this, when it happens through this specific way or manner, then my faith is being tested. Otherwise, you know, those are just the issues that I have to deal with along the way. Peter says there is no one specific way in which your faith will be tested. There is no one specific way in which your faith will be tested. You will experience loss. Your health will be afflicted. That which you owned will be taken from you. Various ways. Tested. Tried. But there is also a purpose to it. The faith is intended to result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, we read this. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction Or being partners with those who were so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is confidence in Christ as your inheritance. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, your faith, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, the full inheritance of Christ. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. In this passage, the author of Hebrews makes this statement. When faith is tested by trial, it will be proven genuine. It must be proven genuine. Now, I'm going to slow down and caution you very, very clearly here this morning. This concept of proving faith genuine is not me acting in full obedience. The genuineness of faith that is proven is this. Number one. Faith is from God. It is not something that I have manufactured. It is not something that I am clinging to in and of myself. Faith is and only and must be from God. And the tested genuineness of faith is, did it come from God? Number two, faith is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Faith is not rooted in what I accomplish. Faith is not rooted in how well I keep a list of rules and regulations. Faith is not how well I endure while these terrible things are happening. Faith is rooted. Genuine faith is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When your faith is tested and found to be genuine through trials What is being found to be genuine is that your faith, in fact, is from God and that it is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. That is genuine faith. In order to properly sustain the behavior, I'm sorry, in order to properly sustain the believer, in order to properly honor and glorify God when he is revealed, faith must be from God. And rooted in the resurrection of Christ. Now, Peter takes this concept and he adds this dynamic. Genuine faith causes me to love God. Look at verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When Peter says that faith that is genuine, tested and proved genuine, causes us to love God, what he's saying there is agape. This is the agape concept of love. OK, the declaration is that God is preeminent. God is first. And so, therefore, I submit to him and in my submission, I obey. This is how we get from faith Testing to obedience. It's not my faith is considered genuine and true. If I obey, it is that my faith is considered genuine and true because it is of God, because it is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. And as it is refined by trial, then the result that it is pushing me towards is obedience, where I submit myself to God and I place what is his In the spot of preeminence. I worship and serve him. I strive to follow and fulfill and walk in the path of Christ. Not because that makes my faith genuine, but because that is the outflow and expression of genuine faith. Peter also says the genuine faith causes us to rejoice. And again, here's the idea of jumping for joy. If you want to literally jump for joy as you experience testing and trials. And God impresses upon you that your faith is, in fact, genuine because he gave it to you and it is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. And you feel like jumping for joy about that. I would encourage you to do so. Now, this love for God and this jumping for joy ultimately leads to lesson number three. And that is that faith graduates into salvation. Look at verse nine. Well, let's step back to verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's the concept In the end, genuine faith is made manifest. It is fully revealed in salvation. What was confident conviction and expectation will now become realization. Christ will, before our very eyes, become our inheritance. And our faith shall be made sight. And all that is him and all that is his Will be shared with us and we will be full partakers in him. It's beautiful. But what do we say about Peter? This whole thing started by looking at Peter, and Tom graciously read for us from two passages this morning. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. Jesus had to reach out and save him, and he called him Little Faith. Peter swore that he would follow Jesus even to death, only to literally reject him three times and say, I never knew the man. Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Did his faith fail? No. Hear me. No. Was his faith genuine? Yes. How do we know this? Here's how we know this faith is rooted in the resurrection of Christ and in Christ we have life. The confident expectation of life in Christ, that is faith itself, guards us by God's power. The process of testing is difficult, but its purpose is to reveal What is already there. Every step of the process from mercy to resurrection to inheritance is God's work. And finally, mankind cannot remove God's power from God's promise. Faith is the work of God. So as elect sojourners, my encouragement to you is to rest well, knowing that you are guarded by faith and to test well, knowing that the inheritance that awaits you is immeasurable. Let's pray.